Hi and welcome to another episode of Hippo Brain. Here, here is where we have hippo-sized conversations with people with hippo-sized brains. Rajesh, over to you to introduce our guest. Hi everyone, welcome to Hippo Brain. Our guest today is Radhika Subramanian. So Radhika is based out of Singapore. She's the CEO of uh, Resultix, which is one of the global leaders in omni-channel marketing automation. And we're going to talk about uh, Radhika's journey. Uh, born, brought up in Chennai. Then she built out Interact as one of the uh, leading digital media agencies. Uh, and uh, then transformed into running mar uh, a marketing automation company, a product company in Resultix. Uh, so welcome to Hippobrain, Radhika. Thank you so much, Rajesh and Jamit. Very great to be here on this episode. Thank you. So uh, let's start with your journey uh, from Chennai, uh, running Interact, and then uh, to Resultix. How did that happen? A very interesting story, like many of other people that you have had, you know, on this show, I think on the different episodes that you have conducted. So I'm born, brought up in Chennai, born in a family of civil servants, administrative officers. Never did I ever think that even I had the entrepreneurial streak in me. Um, I, my father being, you know, in the IAS actually kept moving places and I was also in different schools, ended up finally in, in Chennai. And then always, you know, the path was laid out for me that I was also going to be in the Indian administrative service, just like my father. So I ended up doing history in college, also did fine arts, and then eventually prepared myself for the IAS exams. Till one morning, my father just walked into the house and told me, Radhika, stop it. No more IAS. It is not for women. You please find, you know, I think you have to find another alternative career. And I was just telling my mother, what is he thinking? You know, after all the effort that I have put going to brilliant tutorials every day, waking up at 4.30, driving down to go for the tutorial classes. And then he just suddenly walks in and says, put a stop to it. And then, you know, I said, okay, then let me switch gears. I started preparing myself for the CAT exam and then went to do my uh, MBA. But then eventually that also did not happen because after I wrote the exam and I was just waiting for my call to go for the interview, my father got me married. So after that, <laughs> that was the beauty of the story. <laughs> and I told my dad as you know, like every attempt I'm making, he said, you know, end of the day, I'm a civil servant, I've got two other daughters. So you know, it is time for you to find, you know, I've got a fantastic groom. But uh, if you look at it, I think that was the best gift that my father ever gave me. So I should not be complaining. Um, but started my career after that, because my first job was in an advertising agency, where I started off as a copywriter. And I think, you know, I, I learned, you know, because I was always creatively inclined and obviously coming from a historical background, knowing how to look at data and looking at, you know, content was something that I recognized was already in me, you know, so that translated from copywriting to being a client account manager to getting into the digital advertising world. Then there was no turning back, you know, from there, I moved into one of the agencies where I was working as one of the researchers for doing CD-ROM development. From there, this was in Mumbai went, you know, built one of the first CD-ROMs, which was called Indian Classical Dance. And I ended up researching that and putting that creative content together, which was like a Microsoft Encarta. That won several you know, awards from Computer World, got me an opportunity to go to Malaysia. I worked for Mahathir's office, did a couple of CD-ROMs there as well, won awards, and then ended up landing up in Singapore. That was in 1998. So from there, I have been in Singapore. 
I ended up starting working to work in an agency, set up an agency, I would say, which was called Connect, which was primarily focused on bringing the same thing, which is design and some amount of technology together before the internet arrived, because that's when I met my now business partner. He came in and he told me that, you know, there is no such thing as CD-ROM, you know, you need to think about the internet. And I was challenging him saying, what do you mean? You know, CD-ROM is the best thing because that's what I knew. So I was challenging him. And then he said, no, no, ma'am, listen to me. The internet has arrived. And I don't know, something told me that he was right. And I started picking up the directory at that time in Singapore, because it was just me in the company, it was called Connect. And I started calling all the advertising agencies and you know directors to say, you know, why don't I come and show you? I have a, you know, a consultant with me who can walk in and show you how the internet can play a big role. Many of the creative directors thought I was crazy. You know, they were looking me up and down and saying, what are you talking about? The TVC world is still going to exist. The print world is still going to exist. Still, there were a couple of creative directors who were typically the Mavericks who ended up doing that. And that started my journey in the world of digital. I cannot believe from 1998 to 2020, where I've ended up from agency world, I know starting over to transition to become a product company. But that from Connect, I went on to join another organization, which has today become DXE. So that went through multiple mergers and acquisitions. And I literally lived through that, but grew the creative practice or what we call as interactive engineering practice, very big, along with this uh, you know, gentleman who came into my life, who is Dakshin, who is my business partner today. The two of us built a very large practice you know, in the company. It was called um, Exchange, uh, you know, it was called Exchange 21 which eventually went on to be uh, acquired by Cambridge Technologies, went on to, you know, get acquired by, you know, a HP, CSC, and then went on to become DXC. But I stepped out in 2004 and started an agency called Interact because I felt, you know, we had a good capability of bringing creative design technology and data together to help customers, you know, to really benefit of the digital, you know, kind of channels. And, you know, when we started that agency in 2004 in Singapore, it was just me and Dakshin. And that was called Interact. And we had many of the banking customers would come to us because typically you would find in the banking world, that's why you have a large part of technology also playing a role and it's not purely creative design. So we used to bring all the data from the middleware to the front end and give that user experience so that people coming in and interacting with any you know, property of theirs, you know, it delivers some kind of an outcome, right? So that was really how I started the agency. Grew it, before I winked an eyelid, I realized we were 185 people. We were in 10 different global cities. And then, you know, we grew, we had almost, I would say 150 customers that we serviced across B2B, B2C kind of, you know, industry segments. We were servicing Lenovo, we were servicing Levi's, we were servicing Microsoft, we did Borland, we did Philips, we did Motorola, we did Nokia. I can keep naming it, you know, there were quite a whole set of customers. And it was a very enjoyable time, I would say till we ended up you know, also getting you know, offers from all the advertising groups. So because this was in 2008, when the advertising world woke up to say, oh my gosh, digital has arrived. So then they went in picking their shopping bags and trying to acquire all agencies who had this technology and creativity capability, right? And then I got an offers from all the four groups. I fell in love with the WPP group because obviously it was the WPP group. Being an entrepreneur, all my light bulbs all went up. I was too excited by having, you know, WPP offer. So met with Sir Martin Sorel. We were going to align ourselves with Wonderman. But then I recognized that they, you know, the kind of alignment and thinking that they had to what I was thinking of, you know, wanting to do as an entrepreneur was very different. And so I said, I didn't want to go through with it. And I ended up continuing to stay independent. And that's when I recognized that this whole entrepreneurial 
that streak probably when I look back at some parts of my you know earlier part of my life from Chennai to Mumbai to Malaysia to uh, you know uh, to Singapore there was one particular piece I had missed which only struck me at the time when I had said no to WPP because from Chennai I actually had gone over to Hyderabad and this was just after I had got married in 1991 my daughter was uh, you know born in 92 and I was at home and I, and I couldn't keep quiet. I had to do something. So that's when, you know, I was, yeah, I had, I remember uh, the set of auto boys in Chennai around near my house. So I ended up doing Sneha, you know, um, home cleaning services. So because the guy said, you know, uh, you know, as they would say in Tamil, right, akka, akka, didi, didi, you know, what can we do? We really need some extra money. Or, you know, so they were young boys and they wanted some help. So I said, okay, I sort of something struck me that, you know, all the women were starting to work at that point in time and home cleaning, especially the, uh, the intensive cleaning was always a challenge. So that's when I said, okay, why not do this as an entrepreneurial streak? That I could understand that, you know, it was doing extraordinarily well till my husband moved over from Hyderabad to Mumbai, and which is where I started my career also, you know, where I ended up doing that CD-ROM. I then recognized at the time of the WPP saying, no, my gosh, somewhere this entrepreneurial streak has been following me. Here comes yet another, uh, you know, time where I ended up doing Interact and now comes an offer to actually sell it. But then I didn't do it, ended up going further. And in 2012 came the big transition. So that was when, you know, the world of big data had arrived. And if you remember, you know, the whole uh, consulting industry also woke up to saying that, oh, digital is the way to go, big data, digital transformation. So even EY, KPMG, Deloitte, IBM, everybody started building interactive capabilities. And even though we were a well-known, well-recognized agency, trying to compete with those big boys who already have a big share of the enterprise world, you know, they can always add another portfolio. But if you have to go in and compete with them, you know, with just services as you're offering, it's, a, it's slightly difficult. And, you know, even when you go into the investment world and try to raise money, you know, they always say, have you cloned yourself? How much of yours, you know, how many more radicals are there behind you? How can I be sure that, you know, there is the scale, right? So the question of scale always comes. That's when my business partner said, you know, enough of services. Let's take whatever we have done, take all our experiences and build a product. And let's, you know, do that. And that's how Resultix responds. So we took a very hard decision in 2012, decided to stop all our agency services, took the entire team who had stuck with us, you know, and who had actually grown like us to think like us. They built the product from ground up. And many people told me, how can a services company ever become a product company? Where there is a will, there is always a way. It is always in your mind, right? I mean, it's about how you go about making the change. No turning back. And that's how Resultix came into existence today. So we have been in the market for six years. We launched ourselves in 2014. And, you know, from there, you know, we, we got, I didn't think we would get this recognition so quickly to be pitted against some of the biggest boys in the industry like Adobe, Salesforce, IBM. But probably our passion, resilience, recognizing an opportunity to the market and transitioning taking the bold step of transitioning really did the trick, I would say. It's very interesting, Radhika, from services to product. Now let me hold there and let me also be one of the naysayers. How is that even possible? Because a service mindset is slightly different. A product mindset is slightly different. And um, Fundamentally, a company and the product it comes out is a reflection of the culture that you build and the thinking that you build. And uh, I would, uh, to a layman, assume that a services one requires a different uh, way of thinking. 
And in product, one requires a different way of thinking. In services, you want them to be dependent on you. And in product, you say you have to be dependent on a system and a process and I pass it on to you. How would you say you've made the transition and what are the challenges you had while keep, keeping this transition? You know, you make a very good point. See, that's what is the, it's like, you know, asking are leaders born or are they made? It's like the MBA question, right? So the same thing, if I may say so, right? So the product mindset to the services mindset. Let's uh, ask, okay, let's take a pause here for a minute, right? If you look at all the greatest of the product companies, they only come and sell the tech and go. The tech is only as good as it is in the shelf. It only realizes or the value is recognized when the people use it and there is value derived out of it. Where does that come from? From the services mentality. End of the day, the services players take the tech and say, oh yeah, I will deploy it for you and make all the money in the world and then make you recognize the benefit from that. Would you agree there, right? Okay, so we came from the services mentality, but also had used technology in the process of delivering those services. We, because we were a digital agency, we used to see, we saw the evolution of digital from internet, came mobile, came social, came e-commerce, came, came CRM, e-commerce, digital on the street, the entire evolution we saw. We also saw software tools come right from Hotmail to MailChimp to Eloqua to Responses, you name it, we saw it all. We leveraged those tools and serviced customers, leveraging those tools. So picking the best of what those tools could do to what they had missed because they came at a point in time where they could only do that much. Now came an opportunity for us to change the game, to bring the ideal balance between product and services and ensure customers are adopting it to make a change and extract value out of it. That's what I would say, Jaiman. Okay, so, so it it's, is it's, a, it's quite interesting. So what you're saying that a great product can only be made by somebody who's gone through that fire and come out pure from the services mindset and be able to do it. And therefore, that makes a great product. I would tell you, I agree. I would say that yeah, that's the case. You know, Jaimit, even today, Rajesh is, you know, as we all know, he's created history by creating a company where he just took a mail service and made it into a big empire, right? Because today, every single mail communication in the country across many parts of the world run on his you know, infrastructure. That was really taking a small part of us ecosystem and making it completely replicatable, right? That was a brilliant kind of thing that was done. Let's take the case of today's digital world, right? Because you have multiple channels, multiple devices, multiple identities. The biggest issue for every organization wanting to go to digital transformation is data. Data is the new oil, is the new age, right? And at the same time, garbage in, garbage out. If the data in is total garbage, it's also you know garbage out. Taking that part of it and productizing that with trying to bring the ideal balance of services is easier said than done, Jeremy. There are so many people attempting it in the world. Hats off to many of them. I am still striving and that's the biggest part. If I get that foundation right, the rest of it all is like magic. There's no doubt, okay? So that's what I would mention. And I also want to say that even today, though I've gone into the market with a product, trust me, Jamit and Rajesh, every customer, I would have sold them a product, but they'll ask me everything else except which is what in the product. <laughs> so I'm at the end of the day customizing and still doing the services. So I don't see what is the big you know, question between product and service. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> <laughs> even today, I mean, my business partner keeps asking me, 
you know, in fact, he always jokes in the company. He keeps saying, so long as Radhika is there and there are a few other people, I think we'll always be in the services mentality, not because I want to be, because customers in the market are forcing me to do it. <laughs> That's the reality. <laughs> That's what I would like to mention. <laughs> On that, Radhika, how do you make the call as you know, you're running this product, you're building out this product and customers ask for, okay, I want this, I want that feature, I want like what you just said. So this decision as a product company, how do you decide where you customize, where you don't customize? That's one. Second, I want to discuss also is after this is we should take up as a product market fit. We'll come back to that in a minute. Sure. Sure. I think the toughest question is what to customize and what do you put into the product roadmap where that feature becomes part of every other customer, right? So generally what I try to do is even before when I'm, uh, when all our sales sellers and the people were in the market, trying to make the change management in the customer, which is in his own way of thinking, because in, if you see in the whole entire world globally, not only in India, everybody has been thinking about marketing automation as just about sending emails and SMSs. That's what they see it as. They can't you know, see that, oh no, it's much beyond. It's really understanding who is coming in and through which channel. Do I know whether it's a prospect or whether it's a customer? What do I go and communicate with them? And let us treat each individual as a separate individual and not as just because it fits into a bucket of 500 people similar to them. So that whole change itself we are trying to do. And in the process of qualifying a customer and trying to understand where they are in their journey of that customer engagement life cycle of, you know, getting to omni-channel readiness or this level five readiness, as we call it, we understand to say, where are the pockets that we would need to customize? There itself, we will look at it. Then we tell the customer that where we think the data, as we said, because if the data coming in is not going to work, my entire journey is not going to work. So that is the place where I allow certain amounts of customization. So we've provided certain features where we have three or four types of getting the data up and running. So we've got an underlying CDP layer, which we call as the customer data platform, because that's where we consolidate the data from all of their internal sources, even external third party, second party partner affiliates from which we may need to bring the data and do you know, the consolidation and the understanding. That is the place where I allow certain amount of customization. The other place generally that I allow and we try to see what could be customized is on the analytics and the reporting. Because remember that the conversion or attribution varies by the business serve. It varies by the channels that are also in the life cycle of the customer in those industry verticals. So we need to understand that and then map it back. And there I do allow. But again, I do it in a way where I've been very lucky that many of my customers have been have been maverick leaders themselves where they say hey guys we're happy to contribute to your product go ahead leverage us as your first pilot customer you can take those and see how effectively it's working for us and then we are happy for the industry to benefit from it which we're very very lucky and there are some customers of course who rag me and say you need to pay me ip rights for it <laughs> i've given you the idea <laughs> so it works both ways but that's how i derive the customization yeah you know and so we and we plan it out in a roadmap where we have certain customizations which we'll do in that tenant. Otherwise, it goes into the product roadmap and gets released in every six months. That's how we do it. So if I take you back to 2014, um, you have the you start work on the product, you release the product. Now, how do you go about getting the product market fit? How do you know what you've built is what customers are interested in? What was the early experience in getting the product market fit right? So before I answer the product market fit, I also want to tell all those entrepreneurs who actually dream big, right? I think myself and Dakshin dreamed big as well. 
we learned a lot of lessons and very painful lessons because we chose a very painful path. I also need to mention that, which is a very interesting part for the viewers to know, right? So being an agency, we had some retained earnings. We had the option, I could go out into the market, build a business plan, talk about our agency experience, having used all the tools and ask for the first 3 million check to build the platform. When I started talking to a few people, I recognized it was going to be a lost game. By the time I convinced them, because we were also enterprise, you know, we were B2B sale product. We were not a B2C, we were not a chai point. We were not a, a flip cut, you know, so it is a different game altogether. So I knew if I have to convince them, they'll say, oh, how do you think you can sell against SAP? How do you think you can sell against Oracle? By the time I convinced, probably I would have had to meet 250 investors. I would have convinced them out of five years of my life. I told my business partner, there is no way we're going to go and raise money and try to build the product. Let us take the plunge. Let's go ahead, take the return earnings, build a product, get the first couple of marquee customers. Then let's see what happens. But easier said, I did not know because when I got the first note for, you know, what was the money required to build the product, it, I was given a half a million dollar budget. And I can tell you, we exceeded it, God knows, X number of times. I cannot even mention the number today, but it just went skyrocketing. <laughs> and there came a time, there time by 2015, I would say June itself, we ran out of money. We literally had no money. We had to, I, I was running from pillar to post to try to raise it through the form of debt, literally put all our assets as founders to make sure we could keep the product running. But we were also very lucky to get our very first marquee customer because that was the time. Where do you launch it from, right? When you're launching the product, do you do it from Asia or do you want to do it from another country? Because if Asia has its own brand visibility and the perception in the world of tech and in the world of, you know, your uh, services, right? Because we are considered the hub for technology. But at the same time, sometimes we are also looked at, you know, oh, we are the back room, you know, where it's basically the place where you could take and get a cost optimization with utmost respect. That itself is, is something that we all sometimes get very upset about, right? Because we say there's so much more to India and the Indian talent. There is so much of creativity that can come and people like, you know, fresh desk, Zendesk, you know, Zoho CRM have all gone and changed the game that even Chennai can become the SaaS world of the world, right? So, which is, you know, what we want to be able to go and break that perception, right? So at that point in time, when I had to launch, we decided to launch the product from San Francisco because our target audience was the CMOs and the CIOs of the largest enterprise brands, right? And we knew that if we came as a product, you know, I didn't want to, with no disrespect, we didn't want it to be seen just as an Asian product coming out of Asia, you know, so I wanted to give it a different kind of a perception. And especially giving the, you know, I've been in the world of advertising, been in the world of digital, I know exactly how, you know, the, the brand perception plays a big, uh, you know, game, right, or a big uh, uh, role in the overall decision making life cycle. So that's when I decided, okay, we will launch it from San Francisco, but the first client needs to come from a country where we get the largest volume of data running through our platform and testing the very metal of the solution. What better country to give it to you than India? Because one customer can give you 1 billion, probably close to a billion of data, which I cannot possibly get even if I walked into a Bank of America or Wells Fargo in the Americas, right? They are never going to have more than 100 million with all utmost respect because total size population with the country itself only 300 million. So that is where we chose India as the first base of test of the product because the kind of diversity the market has, the kind of data challenges that India has given the plethora of devices and that too one person will have three mobile devices. Probably he'll be shuffling it in his hands, you know, shuffling it like this. So looking at that and taking that data identity, doing the data identity resolution was immense fun for us and at the same time gave us 
sleepless nights. I have to tell you, I remember my, my business partner telling me, Radhika, if only we built a product, trust me, even when we sleep, money will be flowing into our account. But I can tell you, we have lost our sleep from the time we built the product because every day we're engineering, you know, and trying to fix the bolts and the nuts in the bolts. So nothing is easy, you know, everything has its own pains and its own pleasure points, I would say. So that's how we decided that, okay, we will launch from the US but test it in the Asia markets, which gives us the kind of use cases and test cases that is going to get us completely ready for the highly evolved and highly mature market. You talk to any customer in the US, he'll say, wow, look at the kind of digital you know, cases that are being done in Korea, in Japan. You know, So those are the places that are actually setting the world on fire in terms of how you know, digital adoption and kind of you know, um, use cases that have happened. Same for India. I still remember that you know, Samsung Pay. Today, you know, we could just walk into any store do a mobile pay, you know, with our phone and go. The same thing when myself and my business partner went into the U.S. to try to do it. They did not even have Samsung Pay in most of the, uh, you know, the outlets. So they're still coming up and catching up, you know. So that is what we recognized. So we got ourselves ready, got some of the best of the use cases and some of the, the learnings. And then we were completely ready when we got, when we stepped into the U.S. and also into Australia. So that's how we got ourselves the product and the, and the market fit. So uh, I, I hear you and I, and I love the way that you're looking to start and you, where you get the maximum uh, test. And I, in many ways, I think India is a crazy market and with uh, knowing a lot of companies in India, the data flow will also not be uh, that smooth and that, that correct. But uh, to my mind, when you see, when you launch, you still have taken a cert certain set of calls. When you're going ahead and you're trying to work it, I think the roadmap pulls you in different places and there is a lot of fight. So there is one element and I'm uh, to my mind outside in one is this is a sexy feature. It's, it's just damn sexy. It, it looks nice. It makes my company feel good. I don't know whether how many people use it, but it looks like something that maybe uh, is a marketing feature. The other is a core saleability feature. This will help me crack five different accounts, you know, it will help me solve for a certain thing. And the third, to my mind, is just the developer or somebody getting damn excited. <laughs> if I go and do something, see, it's one of those tug, uh, a tug of war happening between two, three forces. Now, A, how many fights have you had? If you could tell us some of that internally <laughs> with, with your partners, with your developers, with, with people like, Array, why are you building this? First, let me sell this. Or some of your thinking process on weight because I, to my mind, tech talent and tech ability is probably the only shortage resource crunch that a firm like yours would face. So how does this play out while trying to achieve product market fit going forward one step at a time? Actually, you know, this uh, one question you've asked, you know, warrants an episode in itself because there are so many different stories because also Rajesh made a very important point. Different markets. Remember, I'm in Southeast Asia and all the six markets. I'm also in Australia. I'm also in the US. I'm in India. India itself is a huge market. So you can imagine I have so many stories to tell you. But you asked a wonderful question. So I still, you know, when, when I, the way we told ourselves, the two founders, and I have to say my co-founder is, I always consider him the Steve Jobs of our company. Um, why Steve Jobs? Because he is, he is extraordinarily talented, very creative. He's a creator, 
but at the same time, he's a no-nonsense guy. He will tell you straight off, you know, he doesn't care who you are. You could be Obama. He doesn't care. He'll just tell you, you know, you, you, what you're saying is total nonsense. He'll be as bold as that. So that attitude, you know, to know that I am adding value. I'm here to create something. I don't want to look at someone and copy. I don't want to know what's happening around me. I want to create. He's like the Kodak founder, right? Nobody even thought that you would want to have something. That's the kind of creator. Those are the innovators, right? So I always told myself, I will give it the business angle. I will find out what the market needs, what customers are asking, while he will do the, the I said, I will give you complete independence. Go, you go innovate. You give it to me. Let me see how I'm going to adapt it to the market and get them to utilize it. So I took on a very big challenge. The biggest question you're asking me, it's to be given to me. So every time I go back, he will always tell me, you always come back with things that is not there. And you are asking me to constantly build, go sell what I've created. That's what he'll keep telling me. That's your point, right? That which is what are you going? So I recognized, see, in fact, when I remember when I first built the product and I went ahead and Microsoft was going was our partner. And I had the opportunity to talk to one of the senior most leaders of Microsoft. And he told me, Radhika, this is amazing. The product is great. But you are no, you, you cannot go in because our whole sales approach, I also need to mention that a little bit, then that'll answer your question, Jamit. Is like, you know, in the world of marketing, what happens is you see uh, it's called an experience cloud. You know, Adobe, Salesforce, Oracle have all put together these experience clouds, but under that they have a whole set of a series of products because they're one for analytics, they've got one for experience manager. I mean, I mean for content management. I should not mention the particular brand because that's Adobe's product, uh, but that's, you know, for content management, they have one primarily for media optimization. They have one primarily for campaign management. So they have different, different tools for different capabilities of the marketing ecosystem. And they've put together an experience cloud under which the, each of these are separate, separate products. And you have to bring the whole thing together where, of course, all the consulting uh, companies, the implementation partners make a lot of money trying to make the tool set work for the brand. So what we decided is we knew that if we had to get to real-time customer engagement, which means recognizing Jameth when he's walking into a Phoenix mall, I should be able to instantaneously respond to him based on what he had done just five minutes back on the mobile app or probably on what he did on the website means the data flow needs to be seamless, which means no point in breaking it into siloed products, but have it all integrated. So we built a product from ground up, which brings data orchestration and analytics all together in one system. We did not modularize and sell. So we don't go and sell, oh yeah, we have only web analytics. Uh, we can do only push notifications. Don't worry, we'll give you only push notifications. We don't do that. So I remember the senior Microsoft leader challenging me saying, Radhika, this is all fantastic, but you need to know how to make the money. Go modularize it, go sell it. Exactly the point you're making. What functionality sells? Let's try to make the maximum of it. Whether it's 30K per annum, whether it's 50K per annum, let's get the revenue in. We did not want to go. We decided we are going to be like the Amazon. If you recognize how Jeff Bezos changed the world of how we live and buy things today, he struggled for 10 years. Who thought people will buy books online? Who ever thought that you will buy every single product today online, right? So that is really what we decided to do, that we are not going to go and you know do as what the market needs, but change the market in how they're thinking. It would be very hard. We know investors who are going to come in will have to be investors who understand that it is for the longer haul and not for the short four-year run of just making the money and doing an exit. Then in that case, we will have to do what you're asking. Let's look at what functionality the market wants. Let's make the money of it, ride the wave and exit. We didn't want to do that because we felt the whole world is going to go towards real-time customer engagement about individualization. So let's go and make sure that customers are transitioning and transforming from their earlier ways of doing things. It's a paradigm shift in their thinking and getting things done. So we go, it takes 
certain times i would say you know if you then if the, by the story i'm telling you you must be thinking so radhika you get a customer what every two years no no we don't we know exactly where to go and find those customers so we can strike the ideal balance of speed and at the same time of relevance so that we are getting you know um, more number of champions of what we are trying to do and we go to customers typically with large customer bases because that's where we can make the quick differentiation that's how we derive the product you know fit and you know the feature and the functionality so far i have been very successful to say that whatever i built i've been making customers use it and created a road map for them to start going on a journey towards realizing the value that's how i thought no radhika when i first met you I think what struck me was your global ambitions. I think it is very rare, you know, especially for many of the companies in India and uh, Asia, to think global from day one. I mean, what you said, your launch in San Francisco. How did that come about? I mean, was it from your interact days? How do you develop this global mindset? Because that's the ambition that a lot of entrepreneurs need to have. How does how do you get into that? Ajish, I don't know what to say, but uh, you know, every day, every business I look at, you know, when when interact, when I did, I don't know, I was competing against WPP, right? So I was always competing only against the biggest boys. I don't know why. It just so happened. The second thing is, I remember when you know when we were as an agency, and Salesforce came out of nowhere and completely changed the game of CRM. If you remember, right? Mark Benioff was doing probably what I'm trying to do today in changing the game of how. real time customer engagement or cust you know it's about digital transformation of a business for customer engagement so he used to do that if you remember he said don't have to have the infrastructure in you can think about the cloud and you can really get your sales efficiencies and operations working that's what he led he led a big move you know uh, uh, movement like what jeff bezos led in the world of making sure i want to make every product accessible where you can sit in the comfort of your home and you could you know purchase it right so everyone set off on that moment i remember when he came i was telling uh, my business partner you know we i said hey just like they've got a sales force we need to create a marketing force i don't know why and what i did that was sometime i would say in 2001 or 2002 i think but it eventually took us 10 years to get to the point of actually starting to build and eventually launch the product in 2014 so i recognized that you know the ambition has always been to make a change and leave behind a legacy i was in no tearing hurry to just build something I'm not a serial entrepreneur where you just see do something, fatten the cow, sell it, and then you're going on to your next business. You know, and you want to start creating multiple businesses. I was not that kind. That was not my nature. I was more about the resilience and wanting to stand the ground, make the movement happen, make the change happen, and then let's leave behind something that everybody can benefit from. So that was more the nature. I was very lucky in my business partner who was equally, I think, you know, that kind of a nature. So the two minds, you know, is also equally important. So it's not like only one hand. keep striking and you know some great magic is going to happen but he also contributed to that and we knew that our ambition is we want to get 1000 customers running on our platform and then we are happy to hand it over to you know who will be the next you know leaders who can take and run this you know and keep it as a legacy going you know that's what was you know the, uh, the, that led to our ambition i think both of us are of a similar nature too you know wanting to say either you do it extraordinarily well and be the first and the best in it or don't do it at all very simple logic that's uh, what so it's interesting it's what you what you're saying is um, I, i hear you but it requires to my mind two challenges and we'll we'll speak about them i think separately one amazing clients who ready to change their process to your thinking and that's that's apne you said it very easily but i think it's an extremely extremely difficult one and 
I'm sure you have hundred stories that you want to name or not name on clients ready to adopt to your way of thinking, saying, no, this is the right way to do it. And the second is investors who are patient enough and understanding on how you're building it. Because what you're doing is definitely not easy. You're breaking new ground. What you're doing seems to be more long-term approach. And in a, in a world with short-term gains and people who, I mean, the, as the famous saying goes, nobody got fired for buying IPM. How do you, how do you manage these both sides? So wh whichever one you want to go first, clients and investors. I would go with clients first. I think, um, you know, the, I've been, I think it's also about the nature of the entrepreneur and the kind of passion you bring to the table, how much of conviction belief you have. That's the first mantra. Okay. Second is if the, the customer recognizes that and he feels you're doing it with real intention of wanting to make him succeed. It's not about your arrogant belief and where you're just coming and saying, oh, you know, hey, I'm telling you, you know, you have to listen. That never flies with anybody because, you know, you have to feel, hey, this is great. You've done all of this, which is fantastic. But here is what the future is like. And I think if you were to embark on this, you're going to benefit it, benefit, you know, the following. If you say it with that passion, with that humility to want to make sure that they are going to be successful, there are a lot of the leaders who are willing to say, I gosh, I mean, she makes a lot of sense. Let's walk the path, happy to put my neck even on the block to want to take that decision. Because today, I mean, if Uber can come out of nowhere and, you know, you know, Facebook, you know, did not get into the Gartner Magic Quadrant or did not get into the Forrester to become Facebook, right? I mean, there are a lot of tech companies that came out of nowhere just because they were so passionate about the value they wanted to give to customers. So I think that is what I am able to, you know, I recognized was probably one of our strengths and that I was very lucky. And also when the way, the way I select customers and I go and do my first conversation, usually in the couple of conversations, I know whether that person is going to be maverick in attitude and nature, wanting to say, I'm not going to follow the herd mentality. I want to lead by example. I'm willing to take the risk. That is the kind of pay, pay players I choose to want to make that paradigm shift. Because otherwise, as you said, it will be more about this, the other part that you mentioned. What is the market willing to buy? Am I going to cater to that market and ride the wave? And that's not what I wanted to do. So that's the answer to that first question, right? And I'll tell you, sir, I mean, what the biggest thing, uh, you know, this is also another important thing I must mention. When we built the product, our entire backend was Hadoop. You know, it was a big data. I remember in 2012, 2013, other than all the engineers who were just getting certified coming out of Andhra Pradesh, as always, you know, Andhra Pradesh is a state, any new technology comes, they will have 1000 people coming out of that state. They know how to make the money of any new technology being created, right? So we had no engineers who could actually develop and deploy it in production and make it like a workable thing. We burnt our hands so much. We literally had our own engineers who were from the age of watching internet to getting to where they learned it, you know, learned it the hard way. So uh, the, the whole um, exercise was when we started going in and starting to talk to many of the customers in India, when you're talking to India, many of the digital only companies will feel, oh, I can build it myself. I don't need your product. What do I need to? I can do it. I have a whole set of engineers at the backyard. I can just build it. So that is one challenge we were facing. So we also had to choose who and which client we'll want to go into to speak. There's no, you know, no point going to some of the digital only businesses because they feel they can copy and they can do the whole thing themselves. So I never used to go to, I wanted to go to the businesses who are typically traditional plus also had the digital and we're looking at digital first as the transformation, you know, uh, kind of, uh, you know, the way, way forward and went out of businesses uh, like that. Because typically otherwise we'd walk in, most of the engineers will feel, and that's always another inherent quality, I think, 
that's a big strength for us you know all of us in india but it's also sometimes you know as they say overconfidence doesn't really help is like they will always say oh we know it you don't come and teach us so it's also that's where you know we need to strike that balance of humility to say hey we are not telling you we don't you don't know but this is an experience we have gathered of having gone through the hard path and we are just sharing that so that's what you know we ended up you know doing in in in, in, so in it's, kind of customers that we brought so it's like uh, david attitude meeting david attitudes something <laughs> like that gave it a great analogy but that's that's where you know we've also gone through the as i said you know in one session of an hour to take the entire journey which is equivalent to probably a decade of so many every day i would say every day was like a soap opera it was like watching either a z tv or a bold and beautiful you know it was every day there would be some incident happening so literally to translate all of that into a for you know one hour show is really difficult but i'm sure many players were probably thinking of building a product today or wanting to you know building or are doing what uh, rajesh and you were asking about a market fit product fit where do i launch how do i go do i raise money they will be smiling when listening to what i'm saying because probably they're going through these experiences what i'm narrating now right so that's what i would say now coming to the investors the second part that you mentioned so that's the most difficult part i have to tell you they are the you know i have immense respect for all of the people who know how to play with money i mean you have interviewed someone who knows it very well just in two episodes before me so but at the same time i think it requires you know there are some people who have they can sniff a success story from a mile away and they also know how to play with the money i was looking for investors of such nature i was not looking for the pure vcs who would just want to come in and put the money get the exit at the end of the fourth year and then say okay where is it best the growth best the growth i did not want to go for such vc so that was a choice that i took a very hard choice because i knew that i mean you know we also learn from you know from other people who have, you know been successful looking at steve jobs story what he was trying to innovate and what happened with investors and his board i knew that we were building a platform i wanted to give complete freedom to my co-founder to create something that's going to be completely wonderful and change the world i knew that you know i didn't want to do disservice to the vcs neither do disservice to the you know the creation that he was coming up with so which is why i chose the difficult path of going for individual investors who are more like you know very veteran business people who know what innovation means know what investment means willing to wait it out and say i'm not a daring hurry to have a four year exit that's the kind of investors that i brought in so that was our first round and second round now this is the first time we have got institutional investors into the business we've just completed a round in fact resultics has just completed a raise but we've been very lucky even in this institutional round we've got an investor who has a typical the same kind of mindset like us founders and all our early earlier investors because they recognize that the product is great the market is ready because the, you know in a way covid came in and also sh showed the whole business world it is going to be all about digital so i think they recognize oh this product is already there there are great case studies now let's give it the fuel that this business needs to even scale it even further and let's do it in a way which is going to create that legacy so that we were very lucky that we got that kind of an investor so who comes in with wanting to say let's see the success than just the uh you know the growth and the exit so that's what i would mention so no disrespect to those kind of vcs because they are also having to give returns to the lps right i mean everyone has to do their job but it is a choice for me where i knew what i wanted i was very clear about it but the path was very journey i mean very painful because i knew that you know i had to go through so many rounds of you know not necessarily having money but then i had the independence to create you know something that was fantastic which the whole world recognizes today as a fantastic platform
too, which is, uh, which is, I think, with our humility, we'll have to say at least for the pain which we went through, that's what we needed, right? So, so Radhika, when you look back, yes. um, what would you say were the one or two turning points? Uh, I think one, of course, big one was when you made the decision between or of uh, transitioning from Interact to Resultix. And when you look back, at least in the Resultix journey, I mean, like you said, for every entrepreneur, it's a whole series of challenges. Every day you wake up to something different and something new. Uh, um, when you look back, what were the challenges? What are the turning points? Uh, and how did you actually deal with them? I think the first turning point was me saying no to WPP, which was definitely if I had otherwise... By now, probably I would have also been, you know, somewhere, you know, on the beach of Bahamas, you know, probably some money and being an advisor and some, but that didn't happen. So that was the first turning point. And it was done also at a very difficult time. And we went through our, again, it was like rising from the ashes, like the Phoenix. So that was the first turning point. The second turning point, I have to say, it came with some kind of drama as well, because I still remember uh, being a services company, we had the opportunity to work for an air water energy services brand. I can't necessarily name the brand, but it was a very, very big brand. We did a very large project where the, it was, you know, can you imagine Rajesh, the project was with IOT data, which is basically sensors in water cooling and, you know, cooling towers where, you know, the data would be picked up. We have to do visualization of that data and show the reporting on the dashboard. So can you imagine we went to that extent of taking and from PLCs, which is primarily in the food processing business, when you have, you know, any uh, dairy products being made, as the food goes in between the wash cycles, there are chemicals and water that are sent to the machinery. There is sensors there which measures the amount of chemical to be pushed in, amount of water, so that we were doing that, you know, kind of uh, project, which is, uh, you know, deploying the PLCs, uh, where we worked along with DXE, who actually did that job of actually, you know, the, you know, deploying the PLCs. We did all the visualization of the data and things like that. So I remember that that project, we had almost, a, it was a very large project, I would say, running to the tune of almost, you know, 5 million per annum. And we did it for after three years, uh, you know, and we had the commitment from the customer to say, we are going to be with you for the next eight years. But that company went through and, you know, a, a merger themselves, all the people got changed. And then there again, after all the terrific effort of, you know, three years, you know, there was yet another, thank you very much for your fantastic work. We loved you. You think, you know, you've, gave, you've done a great contribution, but shaking hands and showing you the door. And that I remember was the DD day, the second turning point of my life. Because that day, my business partner very clearly told me, I have warned you many times that services is a thankless job. You never listen to me, but here is the ultimatum. It is now time for us to take the really hard step of building a product and changing the game. If he had not, and that was one, uh, you know, he put his foot down and I think he did the best thing. And one thing I must say that, you know, he's made a very big contribution to where I've got to in my life because, you know, uh, younger than me and he used to, you know, I, he came into my life, taught me what internet was. And literally today, whatever people recognize that, oh, I, you know, articulate very well. Oh my gosh, she's, you know, mentioning things. Much of that is probably, I would call him as my mentor and guru because all of it comes from him. I just probably articulate it extraordinarily well. So much of the credit needs to go to him and not to me, but <laughs> that I'm sure many of the people who watch this video will be smiling, uh, you know, thinking about him. But that was the second uh, turning point. But the third major turning point, you know, uh, Rajesh, I must mention is even when you decide to want to become a product company and you're self-funded, 
So the question is, you will always have your past customers come and lure you to say, oh, I'm willing to give you a project of 500,000. I'm willing to give you a project of a million. Saying no to that and continuing to stay focused on your journey, that is the critical part because you will have the distraction coming all the time and you have to still say, no way. I'm not going to go back to my old methods of doing things. I had to turn down so many projects. Even when I was having no money in the bank account, probably to pay the next day payroll or probably clear my outstanding. But I stuck to my ground and I said, no, we are going to stay focused on the product. And for that also, I need to say kudos to my business partner because he made it very clear. This is a final round. We have something to contribute and change the game. Let's do it. Let's go through whatever be the journey, however difficult it's going to be. And I think we did that. And, and you know, the proof of the pudding is in what we are doing today, I think. That's, uh, that is the most difficult thing, I would say, for all entrepreneurs uh, to take the hard decision to say no. That's very tough. Yeah, you know, saying, saying no is probably, <laughs> I think um, as an entrepreneur and we, we've, we've seen this recurring theme, it's not about saying yes to opportunity, it's saying no to a lot of distractions. That's right. That's the toughest one in product development. And also the yeah. same when product customization comes, right? When do you say no? And when do you say yes? And what do you accept and what do you put into the roadmap? That's the other one. So you are always tested constantly in that. And especially when you have to say no to a client. Oh, yeah. And, you know, in a nice way where you make sure because you never know where the client is going to move next and your paths could cross again. So, you know, imagine relationships is what makes everyone successful, right? Whether it's in the business or even outside. So that's the other part. That yeah. So how, do you, how do you say no to somebody you are designed to say yes to? <laughs> I, as I said, I can even enact it, you know, and probably do uh, that would be another serial in itself. <laughs> but it's been interesting. But I think, you know, it's about how you say it and you want to stay true to your dream. And, you know, if you position it that way and you've taken the hard call to want to make, because we were very clear that we wanted to give an innovation to the world. And, you know, I remember even in 2007 when I got interviewed for the Entrepreneur of the Year Award in Singapore. I had, uh, you know, some of the senior most leadership of uh, Singapore's who's who's companies in the panel. And I remember exactly the point who gets ever, whoever gets fired for selecting IBM. So because when I said my story and there was a gentleman, Mr. Dhanapalan, who was Tamasek's chairman actually in the panel. And I told him about my agency story and, you know, how I had created it. At that time, we had not had become Resultex, right? But I did tell him that like the world gave Singapore, Singapore, I mean, but the world, the Singapore gave the world Singapore Airlines. I'm going to give a product which is definitely going to change and put Singapore on the map to the world is what I had told him in 2007. Little did I know at that point in time, Resultex would come in 2014. Eventually, we'll get globally recognized as a product company. But that, you know, at that point, I remember he turning and asking Singapore in airlines, you know, because the CEO was in the panel. And he said, she's got such a great story. Why is it you won't give? And he said exactly what you just said. He said, you know, you don't know the kind of, uh, uh, you know, the audit committees that we will have to answer. Why are we selecting, you know, a, a company which is not any of the big names? But today we live in a world where much of the innovation in the future comes from not the brands. It comes from younger companies who are probably unknown, right? And that is the decision where I think every one of the senior leadership team members in every organization, they have to have to take the risk of taking that decision. Then they're going to change the game. I would say that, you know, in that many words. Easier said, very difficult for them too, but it is who's going to be bold enough to do it, I would say. Yeah, yeah I would agree. No innovation ever passes through a committee. <laughs> yeah, and there's no innovation. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm with you. And uh, towards the end, I'd like to ask you that um, what uh, so different kind of a question over all these years. What bugs you? What are the things that two three things that you just can't handle, or it just catches your nose? You know, I I, <laughs> I think. Um, what i can't uh, handle is uh, you know betrayal probably i would say and what i mean is where you make a promise and you break it so which means you have to be very careful when making a promise whether it is you to the client or whether the client gives you a promise and, and gives you to say that i'm going to stand by you and then suddenly you know decides to give you every other possible excuse that that tends to you know because you're going out with all your passion and you're going out with all the best intention to want to make something happen and then you know of course i i do recognize there are things that are beyond everybody's control i mean nobody even would have predicted in february that the whole world would come to a standstill in a matter of 30 days you know with covid right so i understand but still there is always a way and a in a method to how you even want to get through if you were to face a challenge such as that i think that's where i learn a lot about people relationships you know what do you take for granted what should you not and you know you know that all of us entrepreneurs i don't know whether rajesh would agree with me on this but you know we always tend to have a sense of paranoia right they think that if you have to be successful you have to be paranoid i don't think that's the right thing i am actually trying to beat that it took me a lot to want to change that right because i recognize and i think that's where spirituality trying to spend time to meditate you know keeping you know thinking that let's just go with the flow let's not over engineer anything was all those things that helped me to come out of those things that's the one thing that you know i i you know that bugs me a lot at times uh, the second one that you know typically uh, you know that bugs me a lot is that you know the feeling that you know the more you're trying to go and help sometimes people do take unnecessary and undue advantage of it and create a lot of noise that sometimes uh, gets me you know i will usually allow you know because i sometimes think that human relationships itself is such that is there is always too much of expectation and you're constantly the bar just keeps moving up and you're always trying to play catch up game right so you need to know when to stop and say this is it you know you're not going to go beyond this because you've already done to the best of your ability i think that in the business world sometimes you know it tests the very soul you know at and you have to decide then you know is it about you or because you're sitting in the leadership position of you know where 300 people behind you you know their lives are also based on what you decide and your emotions and what you should react to and what you should not that sometimes is you know does bug me you know there are days when i am actually like any other human being right i just want to say that no way this is it you know i want to no way am i going to move any further so i'm not going to paint the picture everything is hunky dory every morning is like super duper i am the ideal optimist and not have one another drama right i have to tell you there are days even i go through the motion where i want to just say just let's call it quits right but then after saying it within probably it will hardly be even 10 seconds i will actually say okay what next you know so that that is the thing that i recognize okay so even if i want to quit it's not going to be that easy <laughs> even if an option comes and those are the two things i think that i generally get bugged about otherwise overall as is probably is an entrepreneurial streak which everyone who they all entrepreneurs will smile at this is we generally tend to be very much an optimist right we always optimistic we always think okay what next so i think that's a, that's a bond quality for all entrepreneurs very right uh, radhika in fact on uh, the point you made earlier about uh, the paranoia etc i mean and the ups and downs i mean i keep telling people that as entrepreneurs uh, while we love to be optimists etc and you have to be there are going to be more down days than up days 
and mm. you have to sort of live through those down days there are few of those ecstatic days of course but you're going into work every day to really reduce the risk of failure in a way entrepreneurs are the opposite of risk takers um because we are going to work essentially working to reduce the chances of failure that a business would have and the optimism that you have to keep is that everything that happens happens for some good even though you don't know it at that time yeah there's one more important point rajesh and you would probably agree with this as well and so would jaymit the naysayers how many people around you will tell you absolutely that's not going to work right. you are not going to be successful listening to that and not paying attention to it and allowing that to affect you is the other biggest biggest you know challenge that is the real uh, you know test to your soul and to your resilience right which is like going to a state of nirvana i would say because i remember when i i told you, you know that several transitions or oh, how can a services company ever become a product company there is no way you are ever going to get into the gartner magic quadrant what made you think you know you are not in america so you are not you know coming from america how can you get into that so you know these are things that i'm constantly told oh you can never do enterprise sale it's not going to be possible you are not a accenture you are not a deloitte you just have to listen smile and say okay i appreciate the feedback i appreciate the input i'm i'm going to continue to keep doing what i can do with the hope that i'm going to be successful and keep just keep you know uh, jogging along that's what i would say that's the other learning no it's been a fascinating conversation radhika i think uh, wonderful to listen to your journey and when i look back at the last hour or so that we've spoken uh, i think uh, uh, if i were to summarize it a lot of your life has really been about the path not taken um right from i mean you've ta- you've chosen a very different path so you've not taken the obvious path at many at many junctures i mean um um i sometimes think if you if you had become a bureaucrat in india an is officer uh again there that would have been a transformative thing in india i think the way you think uh, the decision to uh, uh, make those make the big transition i mean you have a great agency you had a wonderful buyout offer and you were able to say no at that time then the investment being made in the product side that core belief that the product is supreme that we are going to be able to go out and actually change how businesses work we're going to go in and help businesses transform themselves uh, i think it's been a fascinating uh, uh, story uh, uh, listening to you uh, back to jamit yeah rajesh i think it's quite it is uh, two things one i don't know how many of our listeners know about microsoft encarta and cd roms <laughs> it requires a certain age demographic for people to appreciate how far and how long the journey has been and they were beautiful products and to and to take that plunge and to say and you have a great services again to break that and get, get into product and taking not just the other path but the more difficult path and i think uh, radhika has completely um, uh, explained and uh, to my mind inspired me to look at it and say what more and what more difficult things and what is the right thing so i think the most important question is the product market fit and today when i go back i feel it's not about product market fit but it's a problem mindset fit whether it is when you're choosing the right clients to work with whether problem mindset fit should happen or investors 
or in Radhika's case, very aptly, the right partners. And it's I think when that works, I think magic happens. Thank you for listening to an amazing conversation on Hippo Brain. And uh, do not forget to subscribe and click on the bell icon. And wherever you get, it's available on YouTube and wherever else you get your podcast, we're there as well. Thank you for being a great audience. Thank you, Radhika. Thank you, Rajesh. Vilas, Radhika, I have the last word. Thank you so much, Rajesh Chairman. Thank you for a very interesting conversation and for giving me an opportunity to pass.